This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. I uh, made a slight mistake in the bulletin. Our text tonight, it is John chapter 6, starting in verse 41. Uh, But tonight I will only be going through verse 59, not verse 66, as I have printed. So our reading tonight is John 6, 41 through 659. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that we would see in it the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life, who is true food and true drink for our souls, and that if we partake of him, we will live forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
A couple of weeks ago, we began our look at Jesus' teaching discourse here in John chapter 6. It surrounds one of Jesus' famous I am statements that he makes throughout the Gospel of John, the particular one here, that he is the bread of life. Now, this episode in John chapter 6, it began with Jesus' rise to instant celebrity status after the feeding miracle near Bethsaida. In an age where food could be hard to come by, a man who could provide food at will was going to be popular. And as you may recall, Jesus was so popular that the people tried to make him king. But Jesus was not interested in an earthly kingdom built on an agenda of food provision. Jesus came to do the work of salvation for his people. In this teaching, he makes very clear what he has come to do through this discussion of bread. Bread is necessary for the physical life. It is necessary for sustenance. Jesus has appealed to the historical account of the manna in the wilderness by which the children of Israel ate and survived in the time of the Exodus. And he will do that again tonight. As with all of the Old Testament scriptures, this manna, for whatever purposes it served at the time, it points ultimately to Christ, the true bread which has come down from heaven. Just as one must have physical bread, he must have physical food to sustain this physical life, Christ is the bread that nourishes his people to spiritual life. But unlike the bread that we might eat every day and hunger again, the nourishment Jesus provides lasts forever. To partake of Christ is to live forever. So in our text tonight, we see the continuation of Jesus' teaching concerning the bread of life. We will see four points tonight that will round out this teaching, round out this discourse. First, we see skepticism in verses 41 and 42. These leaders of the Jews, they doubt Jesus' message. Second, we see sovereignty in verses 43 through 47. Jesus describes the mechanism of how people may receive eternal life through him. And third, we see sustenance in verses 48 through 51. What does this bread of life do for people? And then fourth, selectivity in verses 52 through 59. What criteria separates those who receive the benefits of this bread from those who do not? So again, we have skepticism, sovereignty, sustenance, and selectivity. So first we look at skepticism in verses 41 and 42. So among those present for Jesus' teaching are these Jews. These would be Jesus' typical opponents. It would be the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and those who support them. We find out at the very end of this passage that we read that Jesus is actually offering this teaching in a synagogue. It would be the Jewish house of worship where they would come together, they would hear the scriptures read and taught on the Sabbath and so forth. Now these leaders of the Jews, they are the same people who have been conspiring to kill Jesus. They oppose him not only in their private plotting, their attempts to kill him, but also in his public teaching. They seem to follow him around 
and try to trip him up, try to get him to stumble, try to foil him at every turn. Well, the issue that they take this time is with Jesus' claim that he is the bread that has come down from heaven. Jesus is, as the Son of God in the flesh, asserting his heavenly origin. Now, the Jews reject this claim as blasphemous because they recognize, correctly, that Jesus' claim of heavenly origin is a claim that he is divine, that he is God. The problem is they are rejecting the claim itself as false, whereas it is in fact true. Now, part of why they refuse to accept Jesus' claim here, or at least the counterclaim that they offer in opposition here, is what they know or what they think they know about where Jesus came from, is what we see in verse 42. Is, this, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Now, isn't it fascinating here that their denial of Jesus, their denial of his divinity, of his authority, of his being this bread that comes down from heaven, includes, among other things, denial of the virgin birth. They believe that Jesus was merely the natural-born son of Joseph and Mary. Now, implicit in this is an accusation of scandal, because Jesus was conceived before Mary and Joseph were married. In fact, later on in John 8, 41, they will make this scandalous accusation explicit when they say, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So, part of the Jews' attempt to discredit Jesus was to paint his conception not as the supernatural work of God that it was, but as an act of human sin. Although this is not typically the case in our day, for most of human history to be conceived, to be born in such a scandalous situation, reflected badly not only on the parents, but also on such children. So this accusation from Jesus' enemies not only shows their unbelief and stubbornness, but it also shows that the devil uses the same tricks to oppose Christ's word all throughout history. Denial of the virgin birth of Christ is nothing new. Historically speaking, it saw a major resurgence in many churches in around the 19th century as Protestant liberal theology began to take hold. The goal of many back then was to create a doctrinally minimal version of Christianity that focused on doing good works for people more so than, than bothering about all that theology and doctrine and miracles and that sort of thing. So the virgin birth of Christ and other supernatural activities in the Bible, those were just too hard for sophisticated modern people to accept, and so these had to be abandoned. As some of you are learning about in Sunday school, the founder of the OPC, J. Gresham H., and he himself was a stalwart defender of the virgin birth of Christ and of miracles over and against this liberal theology. For this, he was often attacked and slandered and labeled a fundamentalist. We are still very much living in the world where these kinds of ideas and these kinds of attacks go on. 
And yet maintaining the supernatural in Scripture generally and the virgin birth specifically are absolutely vital. To deny that Jesus was supernaturally conceived and born of the Virgin Mary is to deny that there is any meaningful difference between he and us, which that is what theological liberalism wants. They want a Jesus who looks like the world and wants what the world wants and does what the world does. But a worldly Jesus is no God. A worldly Jesus is not true God so that he might bear the wrath of God due against our sins. If Jesus was just another son of just another poor Jewish couple, then there's no reason to think of him at all. No reason to care about him. Certainly no reason to gather week in and week out to worship him. Jesus is the Son of God. Very God of very God. Come down from heaven, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, without sin. If he is not so, if he is not any of that, then our hope of salvation is in vain. We are no better off than these Jewish skeptics who challenge Jesus in John 6. But in another sense, though these skeptics are displaying their rebellion and their obstinance and their stubbornness, they are in fact carrying out the very will of God. And this brings us to our next point. After skepticism, we come to sovereignty in verses 43 through 47. Jesus knows what they have said, and he understands the posture from which his opponents are coming. In verse 44, he confronts them, not with a defense of the virgin birth or his supernatural conception, but rather the truth of God's predestination and election. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here the truth is made perfectly clear. Though it is an often neglected criticized and maligned truth. This truth is that we are not able to save ourselves. No one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. If you believe in Christ, you did nothing to make it so. You cannot take any credit for that. You came because you were called. You were drawn by the Father. We understand this more clearly from the way it's described in other texts in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2 describes us before Christ as dead in our sins and trespasses. I come back to this text a lot, but it's an important text. Because what does it mean to be dead? If I died, if this were my funeral, and if I were laying here in a box in front of you, what could I say or do about it? Not a thing. In fact, if we were in such a situation, if I were suddenly able to stand up and start walking and talking, you would probably all run out of here screaming, thinking that I was a ghost or a zombie or something of the sort. Because dead people don't come back to life. They can't do anything to save themselves apart from supernatural activity. Another text Ezekiel 11.19 describes God's salvation of his people 
as the removal of a heart of stone and the replacement with a heart of flesh. Can you replace your own heart? No, you wouldn't get very far if you tried. You'd probably be dead on the first cut, or you'd pass out from all the pain and trauma and shock if you tried. If you need a heart transplant, you need a surgeon to do it for you. And if your heart is stone, it's not going to do its job. It's not going to move very much blood through your body. Stone is not exactly good for those purposes. These images drive home the reality that Christ is making explicitly clear here in John 6. We can't save ourselves. Only God can save us. And this, just as Jesus' conception and birth, is a supernatural act. We're not saved by our own will or anyone else's persuasion. We are only saved by the power of God fundamentally changing us, transforming us, resurrecting us from death. In verse 45, Jesus uses a text from the Old Testament to further drive his point. He says, And they shall all be taught by God. He is alluding here to Isaiah 54, 13. He says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Now Isaiah was writing at a time to the downtrodden and beleaguered remnant of the people of God who were about to go into exile in Babylon. He was writing at a, of a time to come where their walls and cities that were broken down would be restored and peace would reign after the warfare and affliction to come. But what Isaiah saw was not the restoration of national Israel after the exile, because that really didn't meet the criteria. It didn't even look further in the future from that. Israel has never recaptured the glory it once had. By the time of Jesus, it was a slave state, essentially, of the Roman Empire. It was not its own nation. In 70 AD, what was left of it was destroyed. Even the nation of Israel that was established in 1948, despite whatever geopolitical status it holds, it is not a nation that has returned to the Lord to be taught by Him. It is a very secular nation and a very liberal nation. What Isaiah saw in Isaiah 54 was Christ and the new kingdom that he was coming to establish. And again, not a kingdom that could be confined to a strip of land in the Middle East. It is a kingdom that goes forth to the ends of the earth. And central to that kingdom is its citizens being taught by the Lord, knowing the Lord directly without mediation. The separations and distinctions that sin had once required are broken down in Christ. But we see this teaching concerning knowing the Lord nested in Jesus' teaching about election. It makes clear that those who are taught by the Lord, those who hear and believe his word, are those who the Father has drawn, those who have been called, those who have been elected. And they receive not the teachings of man, Not the continuing teachings of Judaism, because this is what Jesus' opponents here would have been offering. No, to be taught by the Lord was to believe in the one the Father has sent, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus makes this clear in the end of verse 46. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. If one learns from the Father, if one believes in the Father, if one is drawn and elected and saved by God, he or she does not become a Jew. He or she does not become a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Mormon or an agnostic or a pagan. Those who have learned from God come to Christ. I've said it before in teaching from John. I'll say it again. No Christ, no salvation. And this is why the Jews hated Jesus so much. They believed that they were the true messengers and mediators of God. That they knew the way to God and it was through their ways, their customs, their blood sacrifices, their laws. But Jesus is challenging them at the most fundamental level, claiming that he alone is the way to the Father, and that any who do not believe in him are dead in their sins. Jesus continues to press this point. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. See, God in his essence is invisible. While the Son in his incarnation takes on human flesh and thus becomes visible, God the Father is at all times pure spirit and without physical form. But Jesus, as we have seen, going all the way back to John chapter 1, is the revelation of the Father to man. He came as a man. He came in a recognizable human form to teach the Word and to do the works of the Father. The Jews would claim to be the authority concerning God, but Jesus was the only one there who had truly seen and truly known the Father as he is. None of the rest of them and none of us have or can. We cannot know God in himself or by ourselves. We only know what he reveals to us. It's what I talked about this morning. We can't rise up to God. God has to come down to us. And the fullness of revelation of the Father comes down to us in Christ. And Jesus rounds off this section in verse 47 with another clear gospel invitation. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Not only is Jesus the only one whom through the Father may be known, he is the only one through whom people may have eternal life. The works religion of the Jews would not save anyone. None of the works religions of our day will save anyone. Only this faith in Christ worked in those drawn by the Father, by the effectual application of the Holy Spirit, will be, will be what causes people to be raised up on the last day. But after addressing the Jews' skepticism with his declaration of God's sovereignty and salvation, we now turn to our third point concerning sustenance in verses 48 through 51. In verse 48... Jesus makes the I am statement. I am the bread of life. It is Jesus alone who provides the true spiritual nourishment 
through which this eternal life may come. Jesus returns to something he has already talked about before, the manna in the wilderness given at the time of Moses. In verse 48, he puts it in very stark terms. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. So previously, these people who were following Jesus, these among these Jews here in Galilee who were following him just so they could get more bread, had appealed to Jesus to do a sign. And the sign that they mentioned as an example was God's provision of this manna in the wilderness. Because that's what they really cared about. They wanted food. But this example that Jesus uses, it betrays both the crowd's true priorities as well as the problems inherent in the leaders of the Jews who are opposing Jesus. God, for 40 years, provided manna to his people in the wilderness so that they might live and not die. The thing about deserts, the thing about the wilderness is that it does not produce enough food for hundreds of thousands of people. When we lived in Southern California, we would from time to time go out to the desert. We like to go to Joshua Tree and places like that. For one thing, it's about the only place in California you can go to get away from crowds and traffic. And it does have a lot of natural beauty. But one thing you don't see out in the desert is what you see around here. Farms, ranches, crops, cattle, things that produce food. The land was too dry. was no good for any of that. Had it not been for God's supernatural provision of manna in the wilderness, the Israelites would have surely died. Of course, the physical state of those people when they were provided bread and kept alive did not reflect the spiritual state. Though God delivered them out of Egypt by his mighty hand, though he provided for them bread from heaven, their hearts were far from him. They grumbled. They doubted. They did not believe. They rebelled against God. And so, though God made provision for their temporal life, most of the wilderness generation fell in that wilderness, most of them without faith without the knowledge of the Lord. The temporal bread that God provided did not bring spiritual life. So Jesus is drawing a parallel between that and the present situation he is facing. He had, just a day before, provided a great deal of physical bread to nourish the physical lives of the people who had come to his teaching. But there is a bread of another sort to nourish a different kind of life that the people gathered that day to hear Jesus did not have. And this is what Jesus describes in verses 50 and 51. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. So on one hand, you have this crowd which was too preoccupied with earthly bread. And on the other, you have these leaders of the Jews who are too preoccupied with Moses, with outward righteousness under the law. In one brilliant sweep, Jesus exposes the fault of both. Having the provision of material bread, even directly from heaven, directly from God as Jesus has just given, 
will do nothing to create or preserve spiritual and eternal life. At the same time, having Moses, having outward righteousness according to the ceremonies of the law, as that wilderness generation generally had, that will not save either. Jesus then goes on to describe exactly how he will be this true bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So Jesus is foretelling his death, by which he will make a once-for-all perfect atoning sacrifice and deliver his people, those God has drawn to this salvation. But this is a teaching that is difficult. It was misunderstood then, and it is misunderstood now. And this brings us to our final point. After skepticism, sovereignty, and sustenance, we come to selectivity in verses 52 through 59. Jesus' final teaching in this section concerns the criteria by which one may come into this spiritual life, which he offers through this living bread, which, as he has said, is his flesh. Now, the Jews hear what Jesus has just said regarding the bread being his flesh, and they are confused. Now, as we often run into as we're looking at the Gospel of John, we hear what Jesus says through the lens of being Christians. And not only do we have the Spirit illuminating this word to us that we might understand it, but historically and culturally, we are in a world that understands Christianity and how and why it speaks of things in this way. But the people hearing Jesus on this day would have never heard anything like this before. And because this is such a revolutionary statement, it provokes this quarrel, this fight in verse 52. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, there are several reasons why this teaching would provoke such a strong response. For one thing, if you eat someone's flesh, they die. There's only so much of it to go around. And you need your flesh to stay alive for your body to continue to function. But second, eating a person's flesh is cannibalism. It is morally repugnant, and particularly as it applies to the Jews, it is ceremonially unclean. They had strict laws against coming in contact with and being around dead things. That Jesus is teaching of these spiritual realities in terms of his flesh, and as we will see momentarily, his blood, this is a bridge too far for most of the crowd here gathered. But Jesus does not back away from this statement. Continuing on in verse 53, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He goes on to describe how it is by this eating and drinking that one receives eternal life and the raising up on the last day. Now, I wish I could tell you that the confusion in understanding this teaching about Jesus' flesh and blood was limited to Jesus' day and these Jews but it's still a source of confusion in our day. Roman Catholics use this text for their doctrine of transubstantiation, where they believe that the elements of the Mass, the bread wafers and the wine that they use, undergo a material transformation into the flesh and blood of Christ. 
That's why, for instance, they worship the elements when they are brought in, because they believe that Jesus' actual corporal body and blood are there present. But in the context of this text, we must recognize that Jesus is not teaching about physical realities. He's not interested in physical flesh and blood any more than he is interested in physical bread. He's using these as analogies. He's using them as symbols to communicate spiritual realities. And the spiritual is also the answer to this conundrum concerning the Lord's Supper. It is not through any physical action or magical priestly incantation that Christ is present in the Lord's Supper when we take it. He is present by His Word and the work of His Holy Spirit by faith in the hearts of those who partake. Also, this use of the text as defense of the Mass, like Roman Catholics do, it obscures the greater and more comprehensive reality that it is describing. It's not just describing the one sacrament. It is describing what the sacrament signifies and seals to believers. It is describing the new eternal spiritual life that is worked in those who partake of Christ, who receive his body and blood by faith. This is what Jesus describes beginning in verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Those who are united to Christ by faith, those who receive his atoning sacrifice by this spiritual work, they abide in Christ. They have life in Christ. Because we are united to Christ, we get the reality of verse 57. As we have this spiritual union with Christ, we live because he lives. We are united to Christ in his death. He dies in our place. He dies in our sins and our old man is nailed to the cross with him. We are also united to him in his resurrection. As he was raised and has ascended into heaven, we are raised into new life and one day we'll go to where he has prepared a place for us. We live because Christ lives. Jesus summarizes this teaching in verse 58. This bread he has described is the true bread from heaven. It's not the manna of Moses. It's not the earthly bread he gave the crowd before or the bread that the crowd is trying to get from him that day. The true bread is Christ himself, which we receive by faith to nourish our souls unto everlasting life. We feed on Christ If we are united to Christ by faith, by the work of the Holy Spirit, and applying the election of the Father to us, we will live forever. Yet most of those gathered that day at the synagogue in Capernaum, which was supposed to be the place where God's people gathered and God's word was heard, they missed the truth completely. In fact, we'll see in our next passage next time just how badly they missed it. Most of them will leave. Most of them will reject Jesus. They will turn and follow him no longer. The question for us tonight is if we will miss it as well. Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the flesh, who offered himself as the once-for-all perfect sacrifice 
to make full and final atonement for sins. There is no salvation anywhere else. Even if we have all the material things that we want or need in this life, we are going to die. Just as Israelites ate manna in the wilderness and died, whatever we're doing in this life and whatever things we have are going to go away. We are mortal. This life will not last. This world will not last. And yet what you have heard tonight is the only hope for a life that reaches beyond this life. Everlasting life. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ to those whom God the Father has chosen. Perhaps you hear and understand this gospel tonight for the first time. Perhaps the Spirit has opened your mind and heart to receive it. If so, the call tonight is to repent of your sins and believe in this gospel and thus feed on Christ and live forever. For those of us who are in Christ tonight, we must remember that Christ alone is true bread to spiritual life. Nothing else in this world can save, and people are lost and dying for want of this true bread and true drink. And so may we be faithful to carry Christ wherever he needs to be heard. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is true spiritual food and drink for the soul. We thank you for the life that he has brought us through his sacrifice, through his atoning work. I pray that all here gathered tonight would believe this gospel and would be faithful to proclaim it to the lost and dying world that needs to hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.